0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine, and bringing insights, ideas, and advice, which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode, we review a book by oncologist Professor David Stewart titled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks. Well, I was recently privileged to be introduced to David Stewart. He's the professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa and a medical oncologist, and he was kind enough to forward to me a copy of his excellent book, A Short Primer, on Why Cancer Still Sucks, in which he reviews many facets of cancer medicine and raises important questions about the incidence of malignancies, treatment strategies, and the sometimes flawed way healthcare systems and bureaucracies deliver outcomes. Ultimately, it is oncologists and primary care physicians that find themselves at the interface of providing real-time care to sick patients, whilst having to navigate healthcare systems with plenty of speed bumps. Around the time David made contact with me, an article was also published in The Australian, September 10-11, 2022, reviewing a book written by Emeritus Professor of Immunology at the University of Queensland, Robert Tindall. That was titled, Your Cash or Your Cancer? In which Tyndall discusses the crushing cost of cancer treatment and the difficulties procuring therapies, especially for the 25,000 or so uncommon cancers, which is about a third of all cancer diagnoses in Australia. His concerns resonated with many of the points David raises in his own book and highlights that David's concerns are clearly international. Well, David's book offers a very significant contribution not only for patients and families unfortunate enough to have to deal with a cancer diagnosis, but also for doctors and medical students embarking upon a career in primary practice. And I'm giving this very well-researched and engaging 300-page book a strong recommendation. I've benefited greatly from reading it and especially enjoyed the chapter on screening and risk, as well as cancer biology. In writing the book, David explains his three main objectives. The first objective was to give cancer patients, their families, other members of the public, healthcare trainees and non experts a better understanding of cancer. What causes it? Why is it so common? What are the limitations of screening? How does cancer cause symptoms? How do therapies work? And how do they cause side effects, as well as why they might fail? The second very important objective in writing the book was to raise public awareness of systems, obstacles we face in the fight against cancer. We need allies in the struggle to make everything happen faster to speed up the development and approval of effective new treatments, the funding for those therapies, the tests the patient must undergo to diagnose and characterize a cancer and the initiation of a patient's therapy. There are too many impediments. It doesn't have to be this way. The rapid government response to COVID-19 demonstrates clearly what concerted action can achieve. When it comes to cancer, there are many reasons why things proceed at a much slower pace than with COVID, but there are no valid excuses. Third objective, was to give the family and friends of oncologists some insight into what drives many of us, why most oncologists love what they're doing, and why our work days can be so long. With that said, please welcome David to the podcast.
1: Uh, David, welcome to Everyday Medicine. Welcome to Melbourne from Ottawa. Thank you very much for joining me. And it's very, very kind of you to uh, to make yourself available. Uh, it's our morning or afternoon, you're in the busy uh, busy schedule uh, where you are in Ottawa. And we're here to talk about your book, which I think is really excellent, uh, a short primer on why cancer still sucks, plus the crappy details. And I really appreciate you sending me that book in PDF form. It was um, an incredibly good read and a book that I would strongly recommend uh, to medical students. My son's a medical student, so he's been given the task to, to, to read it, and, uh, and also to doctors. I think really anyone doing internal medicine, I think, really should read your book. And I have to say, David, that I thought, you know, when I look at the title, I thought, oh, you know, it's it sort of, it's almost a little bit light. But uh, it's a very detailed book, and there's some incredibly good science, very well referenced. So, you know, I, I wish you every success with that. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I really am grateful that you've taken the time to write the book and to highlight some of the issues that uh, are experienced by doctors in Canada and patients in Canada, and, and probably also uh, patients here in Australia and elsewhere in the world. So, David, thank you. You are Professor of Medicine, you've been the Director of Oncology in Ottawa. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey into medicine? I know you've trained in Texas and so forth. So tell us a little bit about where you've come from, could you?
2: Well, well actually, I, I grew up on a farm south of Ottawa, and um, I was destined to become a, 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 a physician when my teacher in grade four told me that my handwriting was so bad that the only thing I could do was medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that no, was um, one of many things that, uh, that interested me. and. Uh, and uh, so that um, but uh, ultimately decided to do that and and, uh, uh, and have been delighted with having done it ever since. So lots and lots of frustrations, lots of things. I wish that worked better, but at the same time, i can't uh, I can't imagine doing anything else.
1: So, you strike me as a very generous man, and you know I think that comes out in your book. And you're also very passionate. But why did you choose oncology? It, there's, there's a lot of sadness in oncology. you tell that story about meeting up with uh, some of your medical students at a reunion and the obstetrician said, oh, you know, you don't have very many wins at oncology, do you? I have to say, I do see oncologists now as being at the forefront of sort of advanced medicine with uh, all all the various treatments that are now available, immunotherapies and so forth. It's a very exciting field. But why did you choose it um, when you were sort of back in the 80s? Uh,
2: So like so many things, um, uh, our mentors, so... In uh, a fourth year medical school, uh, school our, our clinical clerkship, uh, we had 10 years, or two, sorry, 10 weeks of internal medicine, and mine was spent on the oncology hematology service. And the two people there, Dr. David Ginsburg and Dr. Peter Galbraith, were superb clinicians, superb teachers, and incredibly nice people. And uh, they're just great teachers. Mm. And uh, so I just thoroughly enjoyed that at the time. And that was back in the days when uh, before CAT scanners or before um, uh, many things. And uh, I just remember going into the clinic and seeing a patient uh, uh, early in the, in the rotation and giving him this new drug, adrenomycin, and the patient coming back three weeks later, repeating the CAT scan and uh, seeing the tumor is shrunk. It was like playing a video game when you're uh, shooting the bad guys. And uh, just the secondary gain and seeing the tumor shrink uh, was tremendously powerful. And just... The patients being so grateful—that uh, was one thing that was so striking—was how grateful patients are, uh, and uh, that you're trying to do something for them, and um, and just seeing the, sp- the strength of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so it was really, uh, really that. And that through all my medical training, uh, every time that I was doing anything related to oncology, uh, just how appreciative patients were, and how we could actually help them, even if we could not cure them, uh, just helping to alleviate their suffering, and how. How, how grateful they were for that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, do, we do form a very strong bond with our patients, and I'm sure uh, particularly in fields like oncology, you get very close to patients. What drove you to write this book? Tell us a little bit about, about that.
2: Well, I first started talking about it, um, telling my wife about 20 years ago I was going to do it, but then it took a while, and it was based on, on uh, everything that I tell my patients when I'm seeing them in clinic and how patients repeatedly tell me that how, much, how important information is. And they, they constantly tell me that the worst thing of all is uncertainty. They would rather have bad news than uncertainty. With, if they've got bad news, at least then they know what they, uh, what they need to do, and they can, they can cope with it. They can get on and, and do what needs to be done. Uh, but with uncertainty, that, that's much tougher. And, so, and, and every time that I would see a patient, that I would try to give them more details to explain things, why things were the way they are, I just the fact that they uh, really appreciated that. They always uh, said that they were really... Um, uh, thankful for candor and just being uh, very upfront and trying to put it in a way that they could really understand. Uh, so that was what the, was one part of driving it, was just to, uh, to give patients um, that information, uh, but also the systems issues, uh, why things don't work better, uh, all the things that uh, delay access to effective new therapies or access to care in general, and uh, the things we need to do to, uh, to fix that. Uh, and so it was uh, also a call to action to try to get to people on board to really start addressing the things that, to, that need to be done better.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, cancer is, it seems to be more from your, from your writing. I hadn't appreciated this it's more common in Canada than the United States. I think you quoted about 49% of males, 45% of females in Canada develop cancer. Why, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that, you know, why is it so common? What are the factors that increase the risk of malignancy?
2: Uh, so the, the, the number one thing that increases your risk is just getting one day older, uh, because your, your body has about 37 trillion cells in it. Uh, about 100 billion of them divide every day. There's an average of three mutations per cell division. So each one of us has about 300 billion new mutations every day. So the incredible thing is that we all don't get developed ca- cancer at a very, very early age. And, um, and so it's a fact that uh, some of the, um, uh, of the uh, mutations can be repaired by repair systems. Uh, some are not important. Uh, some induce uh, apoptosis or, or uh, cell suicide uh, if they cannot be repaired. And some induce senescence. In fact, a large number of them induce senescence. Where the cell loses the ability to divide, uh, but still is there to support your life. And um, and so that uh, the reason that as we get older, uh, we start looking old and gray and crinkly and all that kind of stuff is all those senescent cells are still hanging around, uh, helping us function, but can no longer divide. So it's been pointed out that uh, that uh, the act of aging is a defense against cancer. It's one of the major defenses against cancer. It's just a set of the simple act of starting to look older because you're getting all these senescent cells. Um, and um, so, so that's the... Uh, uh, so that's the number one thing. And then anything that increases the number of mutations will increase the risk of cancer. So things like cigarette smoking, uh, any alcohol intake at all, uh, the uh, processed foods, the r- red meat, uh, uh, excess sun exposure, radiation exposure, uh, all those things increase the number of mutations. Uh, and also anything that will increase the number of cell divisions. So if you eat too much, and uh, so uh, you've got more cells because you're eating too much then, uh, then or have more cell divisions. Or some hormone replacement therapies; uh, uh, those also increase the risk of cancer as well, just by increasing the number of cell divisions. So that you get have uh, more um, more mutations. And then there's other things. So that if you have a, 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 a if you inherit uh, a, a genes that are don't do quite as good a job at repairing the damage, uh, then also then you'll be at increased risk of cancer as well. So all of those things, but the, the major number one thing is just getting one one day older, and that's why the risk of cancer increases as uh, as you uh, as we age. And one of the one of the simple reasons that uh, the rate of cancer is higher in, in Canada, in the United States, is the average Canadian male lives four and a half years longer than the average American male, and the average Canadian female lives an, an average three years uh, longer than the average uh, American uh, female. Uh, so that's uh, one simple reason, but. Uh, uh, I'm sure there are, there are others as well, but I've but not been able to uh, identify what those, what those may be.
1: David, the, the tumor suppressor genes, the oncogenes that, that we, we know about, we've talked about, you, you touched on there in that introduction. It, the, Knudsen has that two-hit hypothesis. I just wanted to quiz you on this, because if you inherit a tumor suppressor gene, you don't necessarily develop the cancer. Am I right in saying this? And this is also a loss or deletion or some mutation in the Alternative allele, which has got the tumour suppressor gene, I think. I think that's right. So not everyone who inherits tumour suppressor genes necessarily could have BRAC or you could have Lynch. You won't necessarily get in the legacy but the risk much higher. Um, uh, yeah, there is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I um, was going to say. He says, is it the same for an oncogene, or does the on- does the oncogene imply that you will develop the cancer regardless, or do you still uh, have, to no, have a mutation? No, uh...
2: Uh, no, in fact, so, so some people are born with um, uh, in uh, like uh, do inherit uh, uh, oncogenes, like T seven ninety M mutation, for example. Some people yes. do inherit that, uh, or other things like that. Uh, but in fact, um, there can be a lot of normal cells that have a, a tumor uh, that have an oncogene. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I very naively thought that if we just did blood tests looking for uh, for uh, mutated oncogenes, that uh, that'd be good um, uh, screening uh, for cancer. But it turns out that a whole bunch of benign things also have those oncogenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, for example, malignant melanoma, uh, half of them will have a BRAF mutation. Yes. But, uh, but up to 80% of some benign moles will have that, that same BRAF mutation. Uh, so, that, uh, so that just uh, having the, the oncogene by itself does not do it. Uh, it um, and again, it takes about uh, 10 or 20 different mutations in one cell for it to become a cancer cell. Uh, and so, if you if you knock off a tumor suppressor gene, like um, uh, if you get, mutate p53, uh, then uh, automatically you're more likely to get cancer simply because of the fact that uh, the cells would have all these mutations are no longer uh, undergoing apoptosis or cell division, so yeah. that increases. Uh, but um, but it does take uh, several uh, different mutations, and that's why well, when, I, when I see a patient that quit smoking 20 years ago and now they get developed in lung cancer, I tell them the reason that they got it was because They uh, they had all the mutations they needed in one cell to create a cancer cell while they were still smoking. Then they quit, and then uh, then twenty years later, just because of air pollution or secondhand smoke or something else or bad luck or getting one day older, that last mutation occurred. Mm. And so the good news is that they kept on smoking; they might have uh, developed the cancer uh, twenty years earlier, but because they quit, they're they're only developing it now.
1: Yes, so a whole lot of permissive changes and other other external environmental factors. And lifestyle factors playing it, but uh, thank you for explaining that. Well, often cancer is uh, discovered when it's quite advanced, and this is, this is another factor that you bring up in the book. Can you explain that? Well, why is it that we're often seeing cancers in metastatic situations, which is much harder to manage and often incurable?
2: Yeah, so the, the very simple reason is that most of your internal organs have no pain fibers, or very few pain fibers. So tumors can reach very large sizes in the lung, or the liver, uh, or the pancreas, or place like that, with causing no symptoms whatsoever. And it's only when they start invading into adjacent structures that you start getting uh, pain. Or if it's in the bowel, if you start bleeding, uh, then you'll see it if it, if it blocks or it obstructs the bowel, then it'll draw, draw attention to itself. Uh, but um, the uh, the bad ones um, can uh, just reach large sizes without producing any symptoms. So uh, I always point out to patients that uh, what happened to them is very typical, and we'd be much better off if people have cancer made people sick it's very small to attach to itself, but it just does not do that.
1: Yeah, there are quite a range of screening programs now available in Australia, and I suspect they are in Canada as well, for breast screening, uh, The PAPS means, of course, we've now got fecal occult blood testing that's been brought in, and, and you talk about these screening programs uh, and the value of screening and, and the pitfalls of screening in your book, which I think is very well actually explained. Um, does Canada have screening programs as well?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so a lot of screening programs: uh, yes. uh, Pap smears, mammography, uh, uh, colorectal cancer screening with yes. uh, uh, fecal um, uh, occult blood tests, or, or colonoscopy, um, low-dose uh, CAT scans for for, for lung cancer. Uh, yes. Yep, so very extensive screening programs.
1: Yes, do you want to make any comment at all about the screening, David? It's probably uh, we probably need to read the book I think to really understand that because there's a lot of detail in that chapter.
2: That's yeah, so well so, so bottom line, uh, screening does save lives, uh, but, the, but the big problem is uh, that um, a lot of the positive tests are turn out to be false positives. Mm-hmm. And so people have to be prepared for a false positive. Uh, uh, and so then be put through the angst of biopsies, repeat testing, et cetera, and find out that it's nothing. Uh, but um, so, and, and the, and so the higher the risk that somebody's at, so if you've got a BRCA1 mutation or BRCA2 mutation, uh, then if you undergo screening and it's not, find something abnormal, a high, high probability will be real. But if you do not, if you're low risk, mm-hmm. there's a high probability that uh, anything that's found will not be real. Because uh, say if the, uh, the test has a uh, 10% false positive rate in all people, mm-hmm. um, but um, your your probability of uh, having the cancer is uh, 20%, uh, uh, then it means that uh, one out of three people have a fo- uh, test will have to be false positive. But if you only got a one in a thousand chance of having the cancer, then the overwhelming majority of people uh, that have a, a positive test will be a false positive. Uh, so so uh, that's just the, the, uh, the way that things go. And, and also with the, uh, with the screening, uh, while they can reduce death rates, uh, they will often miss things. So that the lung cancer screening, for example, um, the relative reduction in death from lung cancer is 16%. Uh, but that, that means, though, that uh, 84% of all the people who undergo screening who are going to die from lung cancer will die anyway uh, because it will not catch it early enough. So it saves some lives, uh, but uh, it's very, very uh, imperfect. And part of, the, part of the reason for this is that, um, uh, is that the radiological screening methods, uh, the tumor has to be a certain size before it's detectable on the, um, on the scan or whatever. Uh, but a tumor may, may only have to be a millimeter across before it begins to metastasize. Uh, so a bunch of um, tumors may spread before they were found whereas others can be very large and not have spread yet. So, so those are the ones that screening can really uh, can really uh, work with. Uh, the future, though, I think, is going to be a blood test. And uh, so many people have been trying to do blood tests for a long period of time now uh, to try to find be able to find cancers early. Uh, and we still do not have good ones, but there's some very interesting data starting to emerge on looking at uh, methylation patterns because cancer cells have very distinct DNA methylation patterns. And if you start detecting those in the uh, in the bloodstream, that might be a good, um, a good way of um, of uh, detecting cancers. Or if you start re- detecting a lot of amplifications, that might be a good way of detecting it. Again, in the past, thought that uh, just detecting a a, a a mutated oncogene might be good, but as I said, many benign conditions have mm-hmm. mutated oncogenes but uh, do not have malignancy. D-
1: David, what does it take so long for the anti-malignant therapies to be developed, D- and how do we speed that up?
2: Okay, well, as I, as I point out in the book, uh, it's an average of 12 years from drug discovery to, um, to um, uh, until it's marketed. And the reason for that is that um, the, there's a whole bunch of things that have been put in place for safety and data integrity and everything like that. Uh, that are, so, all, so all those speed bumps, are there for a very good reason, that is because something went wrong and people were trying to improve safety or were trying to improve uh, data integrity or things like that. Uh, but it's like you have a freeway and you have um, a bunch of fatal traffic accidents and to reduce the risk of, um, of uh, fatalities, you say the speed, speed limit is only going to be five miles an hour. So with that speed limit of five miles an hour, you drastically reduce the number of fatalities, but you also drastically slow the rate of getting somewhere. And so what I point out in the book is that um, uh, we need a different system. And I don't know whether you've ever been to Germany, I've driven on the Autobahn in Germany, um, but it has got um, uh, sections that have unlimited speed limits. So when my wife and I went over and rented a car, we'd be driving along 100 miles an hour, and uh, then somebody would, somebody would pass us going 140 miles an hour. And yet we felt perfectly safe doing that because they've got uh, good cars, good roads, good drivers, and smart regulation. That's a very important smart regulation. Mm. So what I point out in the book is that we need the same thing for developing a new, uh, new cancer drugs. We need smart regulation that permit us to do it much faster. And if we can do it much faster, it'll also be much cheaper. And that is very important if you want access to cheaper anti-cancer therapies, is we have to cut, cut down, reduce the cost of developing the drugs. And I point out also in the book that we already know we could do this if we just make it a priority. The reason we know we could do it is because we did it with AIDS and we did it with COVID. Mm. Um, and uh, with AIDS, uh, the people got mad and said, uh, we, we want much faster access. And the um, and, uh, government says, just said, okay, well, we'll give you faster access. And it happened, it happened safely and effectively. Uh, with COVID, before COVID, the fastest vaccine that was ever developed was a mumps vaccine, which was about four years. Mm. Uh, but most vaccines take um, 8, 10, 12 years to, to develop. But uh, people just made it a priority to get a a COVID vaccine in one year, and we did it. Uh, So I don't think we'll ever get a new anti-cancer drug in just one year, but I think we can do it in three or four years. Uh, And I think we can do it a lot faster than what we're doing now. And the the number one thing we need to do that is just prioritizing it and saying that this is what we need to do. And that's by far the most important thing. Uh, people have, have often asked me, well, if you want to get one, rid of one speed bump to really speed things up, which one would you get rid of? And that's like saying, okay, you got a thousand speed bumps on the road. You're going to take out one of them. You're going to speed things up. And no, you won't speed it up at all uh, because you have there, you have to get rid of all of them uh, uh, or most of them before before you really speed things up meaningfully. So we need to re-engineer the entire process, and we need to make rapid progress our top priority. At the same time, it's very important to make sure that, uh, uh, that it's still safe, and uh, that's uh, still ethical and st- still um, high data integrity and things like that. Uh, but the problem is that we have not paid attention to any of those things while we've, we've been putting the current regulations in place. The regulations were just designed to solve one problem, and it was not what's the best way of, of solving that problem while still maintaining speed. Nobody has ever paid attention to that, and we need to. I, I think there's a problem with
1: it, with across the whole world with political science, not necessarily... Uh, talking well with medical science or with other engineering science, or whatever it might be, th- that often seems to be the problem, doesn't it? In so many areas, you've got these political decisions that are made. Now, you mentioned this in the book that you've had over forty-one thousand Canadians die from COVID uh, in the same time two hundred thousand have died from from cancer, and it, you're quite right. Uh, there's got to be strong political will, and um, uh, it's disappointing when you see so many bad decisions that are made. But th- that's very nicely put in terms of how we maybe advance the whole process. Drugs are also incredibly expensive, and and access is different across different countries, and I guess this this has to do with some of those points you've just mentioned. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? They are very expensive, and in Australia, there's been a book just written in Australian a couple of weeks ago. It was highlighted. There's a professor called Robert Tyndall, Emeritus Professor of Immunology. I think his daughter sadly died. She wasn't able to afford uh, a drug that she was... um, uh, hoping to receive. And he's written a book uh, called Cash or Your Cancer. I'm not sure whether you've come across that yet, but uh, that was highlighted in the Australian paper, which is one of our more prestigious newspapers, like Cash or Your Cancer. When I read that, I thought, oh, this is kind of what you're talking about in your book as well, that we have this real access issue. Um, and of course, drug companies, maybe they're profiteering. Uh, they've got to re- retrieve money that they're investing. And I think you've talked in your book about the amount of money that's been spent—it's billions of dollars now—to get drugs onto the market. It's a difficult process, isn't it? Drug companies are having to retrieve money before their patents run out. But do you have any ideas about all that? How do we reduce the expense and get get access faster?
2: Yeah, so that uh, exactly the same things that uh, prolong the time from drug discovery to uh, to marketing—they're also the things that are driving up the cost. Yes. Uh, because back in the 1960s, it cost an average of four million dollars to bring a drug from discovery to marketing. Uh, by 2013, that increased to $2.9 billion. Mm. So it's rising much, much, much faster than inflation. And, uh, and uh, only 3 to 8%, um, um, between 3 and 8% of drugs that enter clinical trials, cancer drugs that enter clinical trials, ever make it to the market. The rest fail. Uh, so, that, um, so that companies have to be able to recoup the cost of drug development, uh, not just for the, the drugs that succeed, but also for the failures. Or nobody would ever invest in new drug development, um, and uh, so that um, if we if we want to bring down the cost of drugs, number one thing we have to do is bring down the cost of new drug development, and that's by doing exactly the same things that we need to do to speed access. And if we bring down the cost of new drug development, not only does that make it possible to uh, to um, to um, then provide drugs cheaper, but it also means that small companies can compete. And suddenly, you can you increase competition, and that by itself will improve um, improve cost. Uh, so those are the uh, the by far the the most important things. Uh, so that as far as the profits, so the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry is the most profitable industry that there is. And so people can say that's evil, but at the same time, it's those profits that drive investment, and that's investment that drives progress. If you cannot make the profits, you will not get the investment, you will not get the progress. Hmm. So how can we actually safeguard those profits and ensure that there's a reasonable probability that um, that there, there will be there so that um, that your pension plan will invest in the drug companies that will, that will uh, get these new drugs at the same time that we bring the cost down? And so the number one way to do that is, uh, is to bring down the cost of new drug development. Uh, now, I, I also talk in the book though about uh, uh, distortion of market forces, uh, which is uh, the other name for that is games that companies play, so, uh, so that, uh, for example, that when, um, when the drug becomes generic after the patent has expired, there's a bunch of things that companies do to keep the, the prices uh, high. And so I think that um, at the same time, we do have to pay attention to these things uh, so that, uh, that we do bring down the prices as much as we can while still maintaining the profits that are essential for progress.
1: David, I feel like we need you in, in politics, we need you in Parliament, the health minister. Have you, had a little, have you gained some traction? I know you were sending the books out to, uh, to most of the ministers, I think, in Canada. Have you had a good audience? About Because what you're saying is clearly is the truth and it's sensible. The, it takes a lot, doesn't it, to sort of get things moving. There's a lot of inertia to change a system. Um, and very good reasons here. What greater reason than trying to improve the life of humans? And trying to reduce suffering—it's a very, very powerful
2: reason. But have you had much traction in terms of? Uh, I can't terms say of the yet. But still working on it. So, <laughs> so, 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 still working on it. So I, I cannot say that. So, anytime they've met with a politician, they've always been sympathetic, and uh, they've always said, "What can we do to help?" But then, as far as translating that into real action, it is a huge problem. But again, part of the reason for writing the book was that uh, if enough people read it, yes. uh, that there might be somebody out there that really was effective at, um, at uh, getting this done and um, could, uh, could, uh, could really start to make it happen. Because, of course, different people have different talents. And uh, uh, I may be able to point out all the, all the um, issues. Uh, but as far as me being able to personally uh, to get everything going, uh, not sure I can do that. But I hope that I can provide other people with the impetus who, who are able to do that.
1: Uh, David, I, I certainly hope so. You know, it's it's a very it is almost evangelical. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know what you're doing, and uh, often I talk to my colleagues about issues that we have here in our health system, and you, you can kind of see what the problems are. But uh, we all feel a bit helpless, I think, in terms of making making a change. And uh, it takes a lot to get uh, to get the courage up to go and write a book, or to to try and be interviewed. And um, generally, you can't be interviewed even if you want to be in Australia. You have to do something. A bit crazy to be interviewed, it seems. Um, uh, And then to get traction from that, it's very, very difficult. It seems to be incredibly difficult. One of the other things that I was interested in seeing in your book is also the number of just CT scanners, MRIs, and so forth that that give you access to good diagnosis in Canada. I hadn't realised that you were quite, like Canada's quite a long way behind uh, the Western world and OECD countries. In that respect. Well, why is that? Again, it's, it's got to do with, I guess, the way budgets have been uh, apportioned to, to health
2: uh, over, so, over the so years. That, uh, so, the good news is that um, our, our scanners are used very efficiently. If they yeah. were not, we'd be even much worse off. But some of our scanners run 24 hours a day. Yes. Uh, but, but we're behind Turkey uh, and Eastern Europe in the number of um, CAT scanners and MRI scanners per million population. Yeah. You're behind uh, Melbourne. So that, bah, Melbourne, David. You're that? behind bah, Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And so, so what I point out in the book is that uh, countries become uh, entrapped in their own mythology. Uh, so when uh, Medicare came in in the late 1960s, uh, then uh, it was popular to say that Canada had the best healthcare system in the world. Mm. And just sort of stuck as things got further and further behind. That just sort of stuck. It's sort of like the uh, Americans calling themselves the land of the free, yes. when they have got the highest imprisonment rate in the world. Um, and they call themselves the land of the free. So that uh, people become entrapped and snared in their own mythologies. And that's very much happened to Canada. Uh, so that, um, again, part of the book is to really point out to, um, uh, to Canadians that, um, that uh, this is a huge problem. And I point out in the, in the comparison of the Canadian and American uh, healthcare systems, I point out that I love them both and I hate them both. I, I've worked in both of them. I love them both and I hate them both. And uh, Canada, Canadians only get what they pay for, and Americans pay far too much for what they get. Uh, so it's just uh, the, that's just the way it is, and and so that we need do need uh, more investment um, in Canada. Although investment by itself alone will never make things uh, things better. Uh, so one of the things that we have done uh, here in Ottawa is uh, a lung cancer transformation project, where we got a whole bunch of people together for, um, once a week for a year. So uh, some medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, radiologists, pathologists, surgeons, respirologists, uh, looking at the whole process from the time that a patient developed a symptom. Until they got started on, their, on treatment for their cancer, to see where the uh, where the roadblocks were and to see how they uh, how we could speed that up, uh, and so those types of exercises are tremendously uh, helpful, uh, and they uh, and they can speed things up with uh, even with limited resources. Uh, and I pointed out that, um, uh, so I worked uh, for a total of 12 years uh, down at Demd Anderson in Houston, fantastic place. But it seemed to all the clinicians that anytime they ran into another problem, uh, they would just hire another assistant VP, which has set up an entire new department that would write a whole bunch of additional rules and regulations uh, that we would then have to comply with. Yes. And then they would have to hire more people to help us uh, so that we could get our jobs done while complying with all these rules and regulations. Yes. Uh, so there's nobody has, has quite found yet the right way to do it. But anyway, uh, we just have to keep on working on
1: it. It's like an episode of Yes Minister. I'm not sure if you ever saw that English program, but that's exactly no. what they did. Yeah, it's uh, I, th- I think having people like you that are energetic and and you know, clearly very good communicator and passionate, um, you, you know, it's just it's it's, it's like that Lazoo saying, you know, to every it's just the first step forward, you know, that every journey starts with a single step. And I think, you know, what you're doing with this wonderful book and you know, the YouTube presentations, which I hope people will see is to raise awareness and uh, really uh, perhaps embolden perhaps, um, all of us to, to have a word and to try and push a little bit forward. And that's perhaps how changes are going to be made. Uh, I'm very, very impressed, David, and wish you all the success, you know, with this book and, and with your mission. And I'd like to ask you, uh, just from a philosophical perspective, uh, before you go and have a glass of Shiraz, David, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is your favorite? Moosehead beer, Shiraz?
2: Sure. <laughs> yeah, Moosehead beer is good. Yes. And uh, any, any good Australian Shiraz is, is also good. Yeah, that's right. We've got some
1: great Shiraz here. Nope. Uh, and uh, consumed with some Balderson cheddar. I know Canadian cheddar, you love that. So, uh, but your advice to, to sort of a young doctor entering the field of medicine or a, a medical student sort of in the final years, um, I'm sure you've mentored many. Uh, do you give them any advice? Is there something that that you would? tend to impart to them? Or is there something that you'd like to tell them that maybe you wish you'd been told when you were younger?
2: Well, just that, that um, uh, you, there are many things we cannot change. Uh, but what we can also do, always do, is we always just have to do the best we can ourselves and to try to help others to the extent that, uh, that we can. And uh, even if uh, everything else is, um, uh, is not working around us, as long as we concentrate on doing the right thing ourselves and setting the example, and that gives encouragement to others uh, as well uh, to, uh, to do the right thing. And uh, so that's by far the, the most important thing that, uh, uh, that, uh, that we can do.
1: David, thank you very much. Really appreciate you making time to come and uh, talk with me today. It's very, very kind of you. Thank you. And all the very best.
2: Okay. Well, thank you. And if anybody's interested in, in buying the book, uh, can go through Amazon Books order it Online or on my website, WhyCancerStillSucks.com.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. I'll out that in the show notes. Thank you.
0: hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor David Stewart as much as I did. I found him to be not only incredibly enthusiastic, generous of heart, but also very level-headed, and I understand the difficulties and frustrations he's facing within his own healthcare system. I would urge you to consider buying his book. It really is a great read. Well, next week we have another very interesting guest and clinical problem to review, and I invite you to join me again then. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at johealth.com.au.